Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the amazing women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States Intelligence Community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. This episode, we are joined by Dr. Stacy Dixon, the Deputy Director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Prior to NGA, Stacy served as the Director of Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity, better known as IARPA. Previously, she held several other senior positions at NGA, including Deputy Director of the Research Directorate, Deputy Director of the Office of Corporate Communications, and Chief of Congressional and Intergovernmental Affairs. She also served as a staff member for the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, better known as HIPSI and earned her doctorate in mechanical engineering from the Georgia Institute of Technology. Hi, Stacey. We're really excited to have you today. Hey, Megan. It is great to be here. So I thought we could kick off by you telling us a bit about how you found your way into intelligence, and especially with a doctorate in mechanical engineering. It's funny that the doctorate definitely came first. I was actually well on my way to pursuing a career in academia when over the summer, as I was interviewing with schools, I had a change of heart and I convinced myself that I needed to be even more passionate about my research area to be able to survive the tenure process. So after solely focusing on academia, I decided at the last minute to to start casting a wider net and look at industry. Unfortunately, my timing was horrible. It was the recession of 2002 and no one was hiring. So I found myself in looking for other opportunities and I'm from DC. So coming back to DC, uh, realizing that there's this entire world of defense and intelligence around me that frankly, I had never really paid attention to. I was asking a family friend jokingly if they were hiring and it started this whole thing happening where I sent in my resume. They had had a lot of success hiring Georgia Tech engineers. And that was sort of the path that got me into the intelligence community. So doctorate came along, but it was really, I stumbled into the community and uh, it's been a, a wonderful journey ever, ever since. That's awesome. So it must have been hard to start your career in the IC a bit later than your peers. Did you find that you were able to hit the ground running once you got your foot in the door or did it take some time to get acclimated? I joined a great team and happened to also join the science division within a satellite program. And there were other individuals who had PhDs in the sciences in there. So they really took me by my wings and really helped me to learn what I needed to know to be able to be productive in that particular role. As part of the the satellite, we were able to then connect also with mission partners. So I was able to meet people from other agencies and learn a little bit more about the intelligence community in general. But to be honest, I was really narrowly focused on, we were really narrowly focused on building this satellite. And with that, Yes, it was it was a little hard. It was a little bit of an abrupt change from academia, but because we were a great team and everyone was working together and I really had a limited focus on what I was trying to accomplish, it wasn't so hard. I think 
What I realize now is that I didn't have a really great understanding of the entire community, but that would come later. But at the time, I was well taken care of with the group that I joined. So moving from academia to the IC sounds like it would be a pretty big transition. How did your academic background help you most in your IC career? And hindsight certainly gives me a lot more to talk about about this one, uh, this question. So I didn't know at the time that it would really benefit me the way that it did. Um, as I mentioned, I came into the career community with a doctorate and didn't quite know how I'd be applying it during the course of the career. But the mm -hmm. great thing about especially training in STEM is that it really does provide a great foundation for being able to solve problems, whether they're technical problems or non-technical problems. It just gives you a great way of framing the challenge and then coming up with a solution and working as part of teams. So the degree itself has helped me a lot in many of the jobs, whether it was the more technical ones where I was leading scientists and engineers. So having the background then and understanding the kind of training and the kind of questions that they were having to ask and the kind of uh, challenges they were running into was really useful. All the way to the other end of being able to help explain very complicated things in ways that individuals without technical degrees could understand. Uh, that was something that I think was a bit unexpected in being able to use a degree for that. But I helped my colleagues, whether it was in congressional affairs or whether it was when I went to the Hill, uh, to be able to understand the very technical investments, the, the things we were buying within the community that would fall in that range of whether it was IT or whether it was actually devices or gadgets, helping people understand the, what the purpose was, whether it was something that really was, it could be bought and could be delivered the way that it was kind of pitched to them. Uh, those are the things that the, having the degree really helped me with. I find it still an issue that it's hard to explain, especially the really technical things that the IC does to either other people in the IC that are not in the technical field or people that are outside of the IC altogether. I do find that it's something that people need to be very conscious of. I can't tell you the number of meetings I've been in where I've seen very, you know, very accomplished, very technical people presenting something that they're really passionate about. And the passion's there, but if you're watching the faces in the audience, they're not getting it. And yeah. sometimes we don't notice. So I think that was one thing on the Hill, especially that I became very aware of. You know, you had to find a way to communicate it using words and analogies that were familiar to whoever you're briefing. You know, if it's someone who really likes sports, maybe figuring out a sports analogy. If it's someone who really likes, you know, being in the business world, figuring out a business analogy, but you have to figure out how to, to explain the same complex topic in a way that any audience can understand. And, and not everybody is attuned to that, but when you do realize that, I mean, it's a really powerful place to be. Um, it takes a little more work, of course, but it certainly is worth it in the end because you're able to get your ideas across and communicate whatever needs to be communicated. Well, I'm excited to get to the Hill in a second, but I would I would find, especially being at NGA and, and IARPA, which we're going to talk about a little later too, because you know, you're talking about data and satellites. And I would find that some people that you know, once you go a couple levels deeper, you would just kind of gloss over. <laughs> That's a true statement. You can forget very quickly that the person you're briefing doesn't have the same exposure to whatever you're talking about. Once you're more self-aware of that, that is something that you go into it knowing that you're not briefing to a panel of experts that came out of your same PhD program or have been working on the thing the same amount of time you have. You really do need to break it down in ways that make it make more sense because ultimately it's the other person that's making the decision about whether you're funded or not or whether mm -hmm. your, your, your capability transitions or not. And so you have to figure out a way to communicate it. So I do want to talk a little bit about your time on the Hill. So you made the decision 
decision about five years into your career to go work as a staffer on the HIPSI. So what was the impetus for that decision? And can you share a story with us from your time on the Hill to give our listeners some insight into that world? You know, when we think about the intelligence community, we're just thinking about all the the three-letter agencies out there, right? And there are a lot of careers outside of that that are in intelligence, like working on the Hill. So could you talk a little bit about that, your time there? Absolutely. I think the decision to go to the Hill was, it was another one of those career winding decisions that I made. At the time, I had the opportunity to apply for a congressional fellowship, and that would have been essentially a one-year rotation on the Hill and then some time back in legislative affairs afterwards. And so you'd stay a government employee and just sort of take this excursion out of your career. And that was the path that I had, I was planning to be on. Uh, you know, things change, though, in the course of a project that you're working on. And the project that I was working on happened to be ending sooner than I thought it would be. And an opportunity came to talk to some individuals who were on the Hill. So at the time, I was literally just gathering information. You know, what is it like to be a staffer on the Hill? You know, what would be some things and advice you would give someone who's looking for an opportunity like that? But my Mm -hmm. timing was such that it was when the election of 2006 happened and the House flipped sides. And whenever the House flips political parties, there's a lot more hiring happening. And I happened to be talking to someone who uh, was, if not responsible for, very involved with a lot of the hiring decisions on the on the HIPSI. And, uh, you know, we were talking and at the time I was just gathering information. So I didn't really want to go up there. Uh, a couple months later, when the project was winding down, it actually was a perfect time to make a switch and and to instead of waiting for this congressional fellowship to just go work on the Hill for a couple of years, which will enable me to actually work on HIPSI. If I'd gone as part of a, a, a program because of conflicts of interest, you wouldn't be able to work for the intelligence committee the same way. So I ended up going this way. And it's one of those experiences that I, I recommend to people if you're interested in it and you get an opportunity, do it because you learn so much about government. You learn so much about the way things are as opposed to what you see on TV. And that was, uh, <laughs> that, that was good. I mean, I really wanted to see whether it was as dis- dysfunctional in person as it seemed on TV. And I walked away understanding that even though we had individuals who were on complete opposite sides of particular issues, they both thought they were doing what was right for the country. And that makes things a lot more palatable mm-hmm. when you know that someone really does have good intentions, even if you think that the approach they're taking is the wrong one. So that was a huge lesson that I was able to take from there. But, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, being able to communicate these very complex topics to members of Congress who either came from business settings or who came from medical se- settings, and yet were making decisions about these very, very large, either satellite programs or major IT investments, um, really being able to sit down one-on-one and answer their questions um, you know, when they were asking, you know, why does something cost so much? Why can't they do this like industry does it? Uh, really being able to provide that insight to them. And then also when they were being pitched an idea that looked great on paper, being able to say, hmm, that may actually not be something that is physically deliverable in the time frame that they are promising. I mean, we might want to look more into that. So that was another way that the technical background helped out. Um, but it was just great being interact with, being able to interact with people who did it, dedicated themselves to helping the country and really working on our laws um, on the legislative branch, uh, and then being able to at some point go back to the executive branch. So, what was your actual role when you were at the HIPSI? So, when I started, I was what we called a professional staff member, and essentially that is a code for. You have an agency or a set of agencies that you monitor. So you pay attention to their major efforts. 
know, how are they doing against their strategy? How are they doing delivering whatever they're supposed to be delivering to their customers and users? Um, and then you also help during the budget process with looking at their budget request and seeing whether you think that there are either additional investments needed in, in particular areas or whether you think they're overinvestment invested in certain places. So you would then submit the budget to the budget director who would come put it all together and then be looking at the budgets across the entire community. Um, during this process, you would have hearings, you would have briefings from the agencies uh, to try to understand what their, you know, what their goals were, what their strategy was, what their investments were, um, just so you can, at the end of the day, give them the budget they needed so that they could do what they needed, was needed for the nation, for the intelligence community. And that was the beginning. Halfway yeah. through, <laughs> I became the budget director, actually. So this oh, was, wow. I, I was on the other end of the receiving. So I would receive the inputs from all the different uh, program monitors and the professional staff members, and then put it all together into a single cohesive budget for the entire intelligence community. Uh, and that was, that was an opportunity that I had not anticipated when I got to the Hill. Um, I actually stayed longer than I thought I would, but that gave me sort of job number two. And uh, again, that, that perspective of being able to look across the entire community as opposed to just looking at one or two particular agencies. And I owe that to this very, I would say, uh, network that I didn't even realize was there of people who were you know, watching what I was doing on the Hill and you know, thinking of me for future opportunities. And so when the budget director at the time who was also from a previous person in the intelligence community, Karen Wagner, decided to retire. Mm -hmm. She uh, asked me whether I wanted to be nominated for uh, as her replacement. And I worked with her and sort of volunteered to help her out on some of the budget drills. But you, so I guess the lesson there is you never know who's watching you and what opportunities might come out of just offering assistance to a colleague. So that's one thing that I tell people. It's like, if you can be helpful to someone else, definitely do it. Uh, you just never know what's going to come out of it and what other opportunities are going to be made available to you for it. A hundred percent. That's great advice. So you came back into the IC and worked for NGA's Legislative Affairs Office. Um, was it an easy transition working on the flip side of that coin? What was the biggest challenge for you? So now you are literally, you know, on the other side uh, of this. So how did that work when you got back there? Well, it's funny, even the decision to go back was kind of a hard decision. I was frustrated with the politics of being on the Hill and seeing the bills that we were developing not getting passed and wondering, so what was my purpose if we weren't able to do the thing that I thought was the most important thing that the committee was doing? Now, clearly others had other things in mind that they thought were more important. Um, but I did make the decision to go and join the Legislative Affairs Organization and lead that for Tish Long, who asked me to come and lead it on her behalf. Um, I think the, the thing that I did not keep in mind when I got to the other side and the thing that made it harder than perhaps it needed to be is I forgot that everyone else also had their experiences with the Hill. You had Director Long, who had been in various agencies where she had interacted with the Hill. So she had her own ideas about what a, a budget cycle looked like. You had the entire agency who was used to doing things in certain ways, whether it's putting together budget books or putting together the presentations. So they had their own experiences with the Hill. I naively thought that since I was coming from the Hill, that automatically I would be listened to. And, you know, the fact that I'm shaking things up and asking them to do things differently, to put more attention here and less attention there, that, that would just be accepted without realizing that I still at this point needed to really make the case. You know, I was a, I was a new entity. I arrived just a couple months before we were in earnest already in budget season. And I did not explain that very well, what the changes that I was proposing, which ended up being a lot of work for a lot of people. In the end, it worked out. Uh, we all survived. We survived the, the, the one all-nighter that I ever, ever, ever had at work uh, was literally in that job, you know, in the first couple of months of working for NGA. And I knew I never wanted to do that again. So 
uh, I learned how to, again, communicate what I was trying to say better and take into consideration the experiences that other people had when I'm trying to convince them that we need to go a different direction. So very self-reflective, it sounds like. (laughs) (laughs) Every step of the way, yes. That's great. Now I want to transition a bit because you spent some time as the director of IARPA, which is a fascinating IC organization and gets little attention, you know, with things like this, with podcasts and speakers. Could you tell us a little bit about IARPA's mission and the role in the IC? I definitely can. It was, it's a wonderful organization to start. So it is the advanced <clears throat> research organization that supports the entire intelligence community. And its goal is to look for those enduring really hard challenges that an agency might have or a particular intelligence discipline might have, and then really put a lot of money and focus to solving a problem that needs to be solved. The program managers come from within the intelligence community or outside the intelligence community. There are researchers who have spent their careers working on something that just sort of has has evaded them the entire time. And if you could fix this one thing, you would really be able to solve a huge problem. IARPA takes that problem on. And without any resources from the agency, really sets about trying to solve it. The other thing that's really great about the way that they do it is they try to find an unclassified analog to the problem so that they can cast a wider net and attract researchers and industry uh, and academia who don't necessarily have clearances and may never have worked either for government or in the intelligence community and invite them into the problem-solving process just because it's such an interesting problem to solve and would also do a lot of great things in pushing forward the whole field, the academic field that they're in, in addition to solving this other problem that, you know, some agency needs solved. So, you know, they find a way to be able to cast that wide net. And it's just really awesome to, uh, to day to day, really be able to learn something new, whether it is, uh, you know, we had people from social scientists who were experts in social science and analysis, all the way to people who were sort of hardcore physicists and working on, you know, quantum computing and cryptology, um, really different subjects. So I would learn something new every day. And we would have these great program reviews where it was a two to three hour deep dive on the technical side of the problem twice a year for every program. And, you know, it was just, they were just so mentally stimulating that I just grew to love being uh, not the smartest person in the room on that particular subject. You would find your yourselves at any given moment surrounded by all these people who are so much smarter than you on their particular expertise that you just, it was humbling. It was humbling to be able to do that. And my job was really to enable them, figure out how to get them the resources and then uh, break down those barriers, help them help make introductions so that they could meet other people within uh, the agencies that could help transition their capability once it was delivered. So it was just a, it was, it was a fun job. It was definitely a fun job. I would think also inspiring. You're in a room with a bunch of people who, you know, are experts in all these different areas and you're just kind of a sponge and listening to it all that it would be inspiring to me, I think. It was. And the the thing that was kind of neat about some of the programs is they would in solving whatever the problem was they were trying to solve, it actually helped out something that was completely unrelated to intelligence. So it would actually help out something that was related to either a, a medical problem or health problem just out in the real world. So this little thing that they chose to solve could actually make a difference somewhere else. And that was really, really um, a nice place to be because sometimes, especially with the length of time that research projects take, you don't always get that affirmation that what you're doing is important. Right. But when you've got organizations coming out and saying, no, this is going to really help you know, sort of name your challenge that the world is facing in addition to this other thing they're trying to solve. It really is worthwhile. Very cool. 
So you are currently serving as the Deputy Director of NGA. Can you share with us a few things you've accomplished that you're proud of, of NGA? So first, I just want to say that NGA is an amazing agency. <laughs> our, <laughs> shout uh, out to NGA. <laughs> shout out to NGA and our workforce, especially. I mean, we, we, we exist, we say we exist to show the way, to help people get from point A to point B, and whether that is physically you know, moving through either uh, navigating air, land, uh, sea, or space, or from decision space, getting you from point A to point B, giving you the information that you need. Um, I'm really proud of where we've been in the last 11 months. During this pandemic, we've managed to really reimagine ourselves as an agency to keep our workforce safe while still accomplishing the things that our partners needed from us, still accomplishing our mission. And, you know, to be able to make something good come out of such a tragedy of of the pandemic that we've all been going through has been really, um, it's really, really eye-opening. It enabled us to do a lot more out in the open, working from home, teleworking, uh, figuring out those things that we did, those business processes, or even the analytical things that we did. And we just did by habit on the high side, on the classified systems that really could be ported to the unclassified systems. We were able to figure out how to get to yes in so many ways uh, with limited bureaucracy and limited governance that we learned that we could do things differently. And we want to make sure that, you know, as the pandemic ends, as we get back to whatever the new normal ends up being, that we haven't lost a lot of this flexibility, this agility, this collaboration that has just come to the forefront and made me really proud of not only the individuals within the agency, but how they sort of take care of each other and really did take care of the mission. So I know you love... NGA, I would think it's kind of like your family because you've grown up there. What's been the best part of your job? And this has been a hard year, right? It's been a hard year with COVID. But what has been the best part of the year for you? It, it, It always, it comes back to the best part of the year comes back to interacting with our teammates interacting with the people in the workforce and enabling them. Um, Before the pandemic, I would joke and say that, well, it wasn't really so much a joke. I would say that I loved riding in the elevator because I would use every elevator ride as an opportunity to make a connection with someone and hopefully to make connections between the individuals in the elevator. And if, you know, we would be laughing about something and if that laughter would continue after I got off, I knew that I had just, you know, really done something good for the agency. And it was just those little things. And now, now, A, there aren't nearly as many people in the building and in the elevator ride, when you're in a closed space with a couple of people, you just want to be quiet right now. <laughs> so I've lost right, that right. ability to have those great conversations in those elevator rides. But I love the, uh, the things that we've done to just make our HR processes work better for everyone to figure out how to still do a promotion cycle in this agency. So it really is those days where I get to work with um, the individuals. Uh, On the flip side, when we get feedback on the thing that we've done, the analysis we provided, the capability provided, and, and we see how it's been able to really help out another partner in the intelligence community or in the Department of Defense. Those are those are awesome. Those are worthwhile days that just make you feel really good inside that you're doing something great for the nation, um, you know, while still trying to figure out how to navigate this pandemic um, and still make sure that the agency is moving forward. Yeah. Absolutely. So you've mentioned a few of them, but it sounds like you've had a lot of great mentors who saw your potential and threw your hat in the ring. What do you think they saw in you that was hard for you to see in yourself? That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a really good question. I think, you know, you mentioned earlier that, you know, I have this self-awareness and I do about certain things, especially about my own weaknesses. And I probably give them more weight when it comes to comparing my weaknesses and my strengths. I probably weigh the weaknesses heavier because 
because I know that there are things that I want to be better at. There are things that I want to do better and be able to be um, be able to, to, to deliver on those particular traits or capabilities or whatever the case may be. I think what they saw is that potential. They saw me actually delivering or demonstrating a trait or a competency in a way that would translate into being able to do the same thing at that next level. And they were able to make that leap. Whereas I am seeing more of the things that I did wrong and the things that I could have done better the next time. And I'm not really giving myself credit for the things that I've actually accomplished and done well. So I think their perspective is just a little more, uh, they've taken a step back and they're looking at the better parts of the things I've been able to do. Um, And and of course, weighing where I still have room for improvement because we all do, but they were able to see things about me that I wasn't quite ready to see for myself, or at least not being able to see me doing the job that they thought I would be able to do soon to me. I needed a little bit more time to grow into that opportunity. So, um, but they, they, they put the seed, they planted the seed. They encouraged me to apply for something that I might not have thought I was ready to apply for at the time. And at the end of the day, you know, the panel making the decision thought that I was ready or the person making the decision thought that I was ready. So I'm very grateful for them for uh, seeing beyond what I even could see and being able to see the potential of what I'd be able to do in that particular role. And that's why it's so important to have those great mentors. Oh my gosh, Um, it really is. It absolutely is. And that's one of the other things that I encourage people, even peers recommending you to apply, whether it's put your name in for promotion, apply for an opportunity, apply to lead a tiger team that stands up. Someone else saying that they think you can do it is so powerful in helping you realize that you really could do it. And I encourage people at all levels to do that, not just to your you know, mentees, but really to your peers as well. It makes, it makes a huge difference in their career. A hundred percent. You know, what's funny is that uh, we were just having this conversation a couple of days ago. I had my sister said, she sent me a random text and said, who's your hype man? Who's your person that really hypes you up? And, um, you know, of course, you could think about a mentor who's provided opportunities. And I mentioned someone who was my peer. And I said, she gets me, she understands sometimes better than I do what I should be doing. And I I 100% agree that the peers are just as important as your mentors are. Yes, exactly. I want more people to hear that, especially, and you mentioned that, you know, that person, your hype person is a, is a she. A lot of times with women, especially, we need that voice and we need someone else to give us that encouragement. And so as women, we can encourage other women knowing that that is a, something that really helps give us that boost to be able to see ourselves doing something that maybe we weren't ready to see ourselves doing. Right. So I love that your career progression has not been linear how did you maintain so much flexibility and openness to opportunities and transition? Because I think that is hard for people sometimes. They have this linear idea of like, okay, I'm going to go from here to here to here. I can't, I can't deviate from that. I don't know exactly what makes me okay with change. What makes me okay stopping doing something, leaving a team, joining an entirely different organization. I've been in the community uh, about 17 years. And if I look at the first half of that, I was changing jobs every no less than three and a half years. I've been at NGA for 10 years, but even within this, I've had different jobs that I've taken and even did a rotation to IARPA, you know, outside of the agency. So for me, change has always been an opportunity and kind of an exciting way to go and do something new. So I, I guess for me, it's, it's, it's just, you know, I, it's not like I'm quitting something without having something else to go to. So, so for me, there's a level of comfort there. I mean, I would probably not quit a job, not knowing what else I was going to, but the fact of the matter is if you're going to something new, you know, that there is, you know, there's employment ahead and there's some great challenges ahead. 
uh, and, and new people to meet and new adventures and experiences. So for me, it's been, um, I, I don't know what, I don't know exactly what makes me okay with the, the change, but I have been in positions because I did the change. I think I have, my career has taken the trajectory that it's taken because I have made the changes I've made to include resigning <laughs> a couple times in right. my, you know, my first 10 years, literally quitting an agency and going somewhere else. Like I did that several times and, and that was not really normal and heard of, but I think it has given me the opportunities that I might not have had otherwise. So again, it's something I encourage other people to do, you know, don't get so comfortable that you have to be in one place or that you have to continue doing the one thing that you know you do well, um, you know, take a chance. Um, you know, the worst thing is you, you made a mistake and, you know, you, you learn that and you, you learn some new skills and you go back and you find this other thing that you used to love. But the best thing is you just don't know what the door or doors are going to open to you because you've been willing to take the chance. So don't be so narrowly focused on what that opportunity is. Would you say that sometimes when you were making that leap or jump that you were ever nervous or scared about doing it, but did it anyway? I think that is also a hindrance for a lot of women is that they are comfortable and they're, they're scared. Can I do this? Can't, you know, is this something I can do? Is this new position uh, something that I'll be able to do? Did you have any of those feelings and how did you kind of get through that? So I would say if you don't have some level of fear when you're taking on something new, you're probably underestimating the challenge. Um, every, everything new is going to kind of test you in certain ways. It's going to you know, reveal skills that maybe you didn't fully develop and give you opportunities to, to try other things that maybe you know, had been sort of dormant inside you. So yes, every, every role, there's a bit of fear. There's a the fear that you're not going to deliver what needs to be delivered or that you're going to fail in some way or... Uh, you know, that you're going to not be the kind of leader that's needed for the team that you're joining. But that also inspires you to try to do better, to learn as much as you can about the organization, to learn as much as you can about the individuals on your team, to figure out how to not only give them opportunities to excel, but give them opportunities to develop and try new things, uh, being willing to let them go try something new, even though you know you're reliant on them. So the fear, fear is healthy as long as it's not keeping you from taking on the opportunity. But that's where that encouragement came from, right? So the, the whole idea that someone said, you know, hey, you probably, you, you, should, you should think about doing this. This is something that you might be able to do. That boosted the confidence, taking in a little fear with that. I mean, you know, that you, the fear is more that you don't want to fail and you don't want to uh, let people down as opposed to not being able to do it. Uh, very quickly, you have to learn, you know, who, who you can go to for help, who you can um, I don't know, who, who do you need to know? Who are the relationships you have? What are the relationships you need to build to be successful? And, and going in with that sort of openness, knowing that you don't know everything and that there's things to learn, I think is actually a healthier way to even enter that organization. What great advice. I love that. Um, so as you know, we end each episode um, with the same question. So in keeping with the name of this podcast, Iron Butterfly, if you had to give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? This was really hard. <laughs> so I, I did come up with one. It's, it's a single word and the word is serene. Um, and I the reason I'm picking serene and I'll go with this, the, the definition. So calm, peaceful, tranquil, unruffled, uh, calm, peaceful, tranquil, unruffled. So I am known as someone that's very calm, um, pretty mellow, uh, pretty laid back. I don't get very uh, rattled when things are going wrong around me. I sort of enter the place and try to figure out what needs to be done and then kind of get to work. Um, uh, you know, and, and coming from a geospatial organization, having a very serene sea or a very serene sky just makes our business that much easier. 
but you know that on a, on a, on a second, on a, on, that it can change, that it can become very turbulent, that it can become very, very complex, that behind that calm is a lot of power and a lot of complexity. So I like the idea of serene because I believe that is how I appear, but that's not everything about me, right? There's a lot more to it. And even though I'm very calm and, and very nice in many ways, um, I can still get a lot of great things done because there's a power within me to be able to accomplish uh, whatever I set out to accomplish. What a great code name. That was fantastic. Good job. That was great. Stacey, this has been really fun. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your service. Um, and I hope you had a good time with us here today. Megan, this is awesome. I look forward to listening to future episodes of Iron Butterfly. You were doing a great job. And uh, thank you so much for thinking of me. This has been a lot of fun. Oh, great. Thank you. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the amazing women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we'd like to thank Resolute Unicorn and Wise Wisteria for making this amazing series possible. We'd also like to thank Grant Haver for production assistance. Stay fierce and we'll talk next time.